Good evening, everybody, and welcome to Chat with the Designers, your live online interactive weekly magazine for hams, home brewers, and experimenters across the fruited plains. This is your host, George N2APB, and co-host, Joe N2CX. And we are here again uh, this evening to bring you a, another exciting episode of Chat with the Designers. This uh, this time, we um, bring up the topic of... Um, um, well, actually, it's it's the approach that we've been using in the past occasionally called Analyze This. The uh, Analyze This series has been popular with listeners and uh, podcasters. And what we do is we take a circuit, a sample circuit, and uh, dissect it. We, we, we kind of analyze it from a standpoint of a designer. Figuring out uh, at least at the at the higher level, you know what some of the design reasoning for the circuit is, and uh, what maybe drove the selection of some of the components, what some of the characteristics are that are important to get a handle on when when actually designing the circuit or using the circuit. And this time, what we did is uh, there, there's been kind of an upsurgence, I think, in in the interest in uh, DDS, uh, direct digital synthesis chips. Uh, for use in local oscillators and um, in radios and de- um, software-defined radios, it's very convenient. Another another type of programmable clock is the uh, SI570 from Silicon. So what's the manufacturer in that, Joe? Silicon Labs. Silicon Labs. So this time, what we're doing is uh, we're looking at the DDS. It's, it's been around a little bit longer, and very specifically, uh, Joe and I have some experience around the. Uh, uh, the venerable AD9851. Uh, we incorporated that on the DDS60 card some time ago, and gosh, a lot of people have, have kind of bought that card. That we kind of it's a convenience card. So we uh, we put the circuits on there for low pass filter and a power supply and uh, an output amplifier. So you can kind of connect that card with any kind of a just about any kind of a controller and feed it the control word, and it generates a frequency. I mean that's the general. Uh, purpose of, of this. There are many different kinds of uh, DDS chips. Uh, it actually sort of started, oh man, I remember starting off in the, this is totally extemporaneous. I didn't plan on talking about this, so I don't have my notes in front of me. Back in the, uh, oh golly, um, it had to be in 98, 97. There was a project out, and I forgot, it was a fellow in the Austin QRP group, I think, or at least in Texas, um, Tim Aarons, A-H-R-E-N-S. I've forgotten his call, but he had a, a control panel for, oh, it was a uh, it was a kind of a discrete homebrew transceiver put together by Brits, some of the Brits. And uh, Tim, I think worked for Motorola at the time, and um, uh, he put together a long, skinny, rectangular control board. Oh, it had to be about like 3 inches by 12 inches long. And it had all the typical controls that you'd see on the front panel. And it was sort of like, uh, you know, volume and, and uh, um, filter selection, frequency selection. And uh, it was one of the first times that I had seen, uh, well, first of all, a microcontroller actually doing such an integrated job um, for a radio. And then secondly, a microcontroller that was feeding the control words to a DDS chip. Now, the DDS chip that it was using back then is was, was a precursor. It was, it was big. It was a 40-pin dip um and it got hotter than a son of a gun and i really can't remember the name of the chip or the any other specs but uh i i, I bought that uh, kit back then and I had a ball putting together i called tim uh, i wrote to tim and had some problems that he helped me work through that was my first time with the dds and i was i was enthralled with it ever since it was a uh, and, and a lot of people have become that way too 
Uh, it was a, an easy way to put together um, a very inexpensive, good enough local oscillator that was programmable um, by, elect uh, by software. So all you have to do is have a microcontroller feeding some kind of control bits, either serially or parallel to this chip, be it the big one that I started off in back then, or, or the smaller one. And uh, uh, that we have today, uh, that we see a lot of today, and uh, you know, boom, you've got your uh, digitally generated signal coming out. As we'll learn here tonight, if you haven't, uh, if you haven't previously studied or heard about or played with the DDS chip, we're going to cover some of the basics, but we're going to quickly get into the circuit and, and dissect it. As we said, we're going to analyze it and uh, go through some of the details of, of its operation and learn why we need to have a. Uh, a low-pass filter on any kind of a digitally generated signal. Thank you to Mr. Nyquist. And uh, um, and then some amplification in order to do something semi-reasonable with it. There are, I mentioned there are several kinds of DDSs. Uh, I, I guess I should have put this in here. It didn't dawn on me, but uh, in our whiteboard. Hopefully everybody's gotten to our whiteboard and, and sees the material there. Let me know if not. And... Um, uh, sort of started off, I, I remember, nine, actually, so the thing with Tim Aarons had to be earlier than 98, because I think it was 1997, Curtis Pruce, WV2P, WP2V, W, something like that, had a, a project on the cover of QEX for August 1997, and that was the start of it all, at least for most, most of us experimenters, and he took, at that time, it was an AD9850, 9850 from analog devices AD9850. And that was um, a chip that had a uh, was able to generate a maximum signal of 30 megahertz before uh, uh, aliasing occurred based on its maximum clock frequency, of course. And he had a simple uh, pick. It was uh, 16, oh gosh, I forgot the, uh, the pick 1658, uh, something like that, one of the early, one of the early picks. And that was very, uh, that was very advanced very bleeding edge at the time um a lot a lot of people used it built it up and, and had some fun with that circuit um and along came uh, uh craig um craig johnson uh aa0zz and and i sort of were really in, 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 enthralled with that uh that design so what we did is we uh we took the design we upgraded the pick to a the current 16 i can't remember that name either um 16, and this was indeed a popular one, but I'm, uh, I'm a more current flash, 16F something. And it was a little bit of a language change and so on. Um, made it more, uh, more flexible. 16F628 maybe? No, 16F628 came later. Um, it was one of the smaller ones. Uh, 84. That's the one, 16F84. Thank you, Joe. And um, so we up to upgraded. It gave us a little bit more memory and more convenient programming. It wasn't as much as the, uh, I think, the memory banked uh, type of uh, control that the earlier picks had. Uh, Craig updated it, and, and I did a lot of uh, testing and, and enhancements, enhancements with the two. We created a program called SIGGEN3, S-I-G-G-E-N for signal generator 3. And uh, that stayed around for a long, long time. Again, just a software program, an assembly language that would sit in a controller, and it would uh, output the 40-bit control word to the AD9850. Um, connected an LCD to it, so you could actually, and then a rotary encoder, um, and then you could actually dial up the frequency that you wished between 1 and uh, 30 megahertz. Um, continuing onward along the way, actually 9850, that particular DDS chip, and I believe 
Um, I'm not sure which PICA was used, but in the uh, there was a project called PICASTAR, P-I-C-A-S-T-A-R, a very popular homebrew one, uh, a project, homebrew transceiver project, used as its LO, um, the uh, AD9850. And I'm, I'm not sure if it used to pick or maybe it used another analog devices uh, um, controller to, to program the, the control words to generate the frequencies. Um, and I came along a little bit later along, Joe and I came along with the NJQRP, or perhaps it was the AMQRP um, project to, uh, we upgraded the 9850 to the 9851 in order to give us greater frequency range. The 9851 had a higher clocking um, ability which allowed the resultant generated frequency to go higher as well, of course. And we'll talk about some of these things and some of those limitations as we get down into the program here tonight. Now, kind of bringing you up to current speed, uh, Craig really continued on that whole process of uh, getting a good handle on the DDS chips. And he he advanced, I think he was one of the first ones to, to advance to the next, uh, I call it the next generation of more complex and higher quality, higher expense too, uh, DDS chips, the 99 series, and uh, provided some additional capabilities such as quadrature output, such as, uh, again, higher frequency, uh, higher clocking ability, lower noise, higher uh, bit depth. They had uh, more bits in the D to A converter, such that the analog signal that was reconstructed on the output of the chip from the from the digit uh, from the uh, digital synthesis process was able to get uh, uh, less noise essentially so it was a cleaner signal and a uh, little bit a little bit more of a clocking and uh, kind of a grounding care that you needed to take in that but nonetheless uh, Craig made a nice project out of it called the IQ Pro and the IQ Pro was a very popular um, project again and published in QEX magazine. I forgot the year, and we spot we spotlighted that uh, that design and had Craig write an article in Homebrewer magazine. Again, the uh, the AMQRP printed magazine that we did uh, a number of years ago. One of the issues, one of the ten issues that uh, we produced, and Craig did a marvelous job in that article. Since then, just to wrap it up here. Uh, since then, Craig has updated that product, uh, that design and the product. I believe it's called the IQ Pro 2 or 3. Uh, I'm not sure. But it uh, it was uh, it, it, it is still around. And I, shucks, I should have put that link on the, on the page. Uh, Craig's got a wonderful product there. And he is a tremendous support uh, person for people that uh, buy, his pro- buy his kit and put it together and have questions, want to modify it, and so on. Anyways, that's a brief history of the DDS. Um, and uh, what kind of where it came from and how it came into the ham homebrewing market. So we thought that we would take this time, Joe and I, uh, to take a, uh, an established design, not one of the more, most complex ones, but one of the ones that are certainly the most proliferate. Gosh, there must be thousands of the DDS-60 cards around the world. Guys find it fun to put together. When we had the kits, uh, they enjoy just a, a fully tested module. Because all you do is take this and you plug it into your breadboard with your controller and you can be assured of having a functional DDS card and then you can concentrate on getting all the other circuits working so you can get a good signal coming out. So we thought we'd take the DDS-60 card and just kind of talk about it. It's pictured there on the uh, on our whiteboard, both the top side on the left, which shows the DDS chip itself and, and the 8-pin uh, connector, and the bottom side of the card on the right, which shows primarily the... Uh, uh, the reference clock, that big square um, device on the right-hand side, and uh, just a little bit to the left of that is the power supply, or the uh, the regular, the voltage regulator, and then the output amplifier. So uh, let's see, Joe, one, can you uh, 
Well, first of all, before we get into some of the depth here, does anybody want to comment on uh, history of DDS and maybe what your experience has been? I, I'd be particularly interested in understanding um, if anybody here, I know some have, have uh, played with the DDS chip, um, either with a DDS 60 card or your own design or somebody else's uh, board. Um, I understand we can get them from China pretty inexpensively these days when they work. Um, and uh, but but love to hear if anybody has had some experience with a DDS 60. Sure, Alan, go ahead. Well, actually, my own, only exposure has been uh, with uh, one of your DDS DDS 60s uh, about a year ago. Uh, my friend Jerry N2GJ asked me to uh, to build one for him because he, he has a lot of kits that he, he really enjoys a lot of the kits, but doesn't enjoy the building part. So I've put together a number of kits for him. Uh, so I built uh, one of these uh, about a year ago for him. And this is before I had ever done any kind of programming with uh, with any microcontrollers or anything, so I was a little bit at a loss of how to test it. And in doing some searching around, um, found some, I, I'm not sure who even had it, but some folks had some uh, DOS programs that they had written that would uh, you know, wiggle the bits on a parallel port that you could connect up to it to, to program it. So I had to dig up an old uh, Windows uh Shoot, what was it? A Windows 3.1 machine that I had laying around, so I could run this DOS program to actually uh, test the thing out. So, uh, but anyway, that's uh, that was my experience with it. It was kind of neat, and uh, I put a video up on my YouTube site about a year ago, and I did it. But uh, it worked great; went together well. Outstanding! I should have known to check your site for any uh, materials that we would have. What we'd be talking about here tonight. I'll be sure to grab it and and, and put it on here with your permission, there, Al. Thanks a lot. Um, um, Okay, other other questions here? Sure, Rick, go ahead. Yeah, <clears throat> I actually own one of the DDS-60 boards that Alan put together, and in fact, it was probably the board that showed up in the uh, YouTube video, probably, Alan. Uh, I'm more interested in the other side of DDS. Uh, obviously, uh, the board that you're talking about goes to great lengths to be able to uh, generate a clean sinusoidal wave, uh, which when you're doing frequency conversion, uh, as we normally do in receivers, uh, that uh, is all analog stuff. And as we tend to move more towards the digital technology from one end to the other of uh, receivers and transmitters, uh, interested in generating uh, digital VFOs so that they can be put into a payload detector and uh, generate IQ signals. Uh, so I wonder if you want to talk about the differences between the whole analog technology thing and the, the digital stuff, which is, of course, taking over uh, in the uh, both receiver and transmitter domain. Oh, that's a real interesting uh, interesting comment, Rick. Uh, maybe I'll comment real quick for now, but I'll put it in, all, in the parking lot, too. We can come back to it and give it uh, some greater justice. You're right in that... Uh, um, the DDS chips, the hardware generating the, the sinusoidal wave, is uh, um, it's analog, and it is used. Yeah, Clint, did you have something? Oh, I'm just trying to make sure this worked. But do you hear me okay? We can. And by golly, that's the first time I've heard your voice here. Good going and get your microphone going. Okay. Uh, yeah, I was just uh, was just going to say I was remembering a microphone. Uh, if you remember, there was a QEX article I think in the late 80s that did DDS the hard way, or a whole bunch of 74 F283s. I think it was the Williams synthesizer came as a kit, and it went up to all of the five or six meg. I built one of those in the late 80s to synthesize of all things. I think a Mocom 35 by locking a locking that to a uh, 
uh, a, a VCO that would replace the crystal on those things, and uh, it did work. It was a bit of a kludge, but it was uh, right about the same time when you could hardly afford a uh, synthesized 70-centimeter rig, I think. I think I do remember that, actually, and it, it was kind of interesting, too. Um, sort of akin to the, uh, oh, gosh, Joe, you and I kind of puzzled many times over some of our breakfasts, our design breakfasts, sure. about... Uh, Oh, gosh, it was a digital version of a PLL, so it was a discrete PLL. So, yeah, thanks a lot uh, for commenting on that, Clint. That was, uh, I do remember that article. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to pull up all of these different references that we're talking about. Um, coming back to Rick's comment for uh, just a moment, in that uh, the DDS chip is often used to control hardware, essentially. And, and it is, even in the SDR um, world, for example, my... Um, SDR Cube and, and other designs as well control the um, um, have a DSP controller of some sort usually that that controls at least uh, one DDS chip and the DDS chip goes on to serve as the a clock in some hardware like a like a in a in a soft rock uh, or some other dedicated hardware so there is kind of a blend between SDR software world and and the analog. Uh, world of the DDS chip in a sinusoid wave. I think the point you were making too is that with um, a pure SDR type of solution or is a lot of software, there are indeed are ways to generate internal software uh, VFOs and, and programmable clocks. And those are fed to internal circuits or internal software modules um, that actually take the, take that signal and apply phase delay uh, by 90 degrees for the Hilbert transform, for example, which is a very popular way to do SDR. And uh, without even, you know, without a DDS and, and keeping it all in the software world. So there are, there's application for software. There's probably still a lot of application for the, uh, the hardware generation of the sinusoid waves. We'll come back to that because that, that's an intriguing question. Thank you for asking. Um, anybody else have uh, any experience in the DDSs uh, along the years here? Okay, Ray, I thought you did. Um, and uh, I thought you, you had done some experimenting a little bit back then, but that, that's okay. And uh, Ken, VA3KMD, I know you're, you're an avid, uh, you follow a lot of the projects along there too, Ken. Are any of your DDS chips or DDS projects still working? Yep, still are. <laughs> and they still are good. I'm glad, I'm glad that's the case. Okay, let's move along. Uh, Joe, maybe uh, could you give a broad stroke overview of the DDS60 schematic, which tends to be rather representative and, and simple. It's got uh, some standard blocks, and then, then you and I can ping pong back and forth as we start to drill into the different blocks. But if you could, give us an overview of the board, maybe from the high level, from a user and hardware type of interface, you know, at the pins and just uh, kind of what, what you have if you're kind of holding it in your hand. All righty, couldn't find the push-to-talk switch. Trying to uh, sort through some junk here in the room. Yeah, the uh, the DDS, uh, come again? <laughs> okay. DDS-60 uh, board is, uh, I don't remember exactly what the dimensions are. It's um, uh, roughly two, two and a half inches uh, wide and about an inch and a half um, high with uh, a preponderance of surface mount components on it. Uh, to get everything uh, small, to get everything we can on the, the one board. Um, causes problems for some, but uh, uh, that's, uh, that's kicks when you uh, want to get it in a small form factor. It has uh, several surface mount ICs, as George has mentioned, the uh, DDS, uh, the 809851 uh, DDS chip, the um, uh, clock oscillator, uh, there's a, um, a regulator and uh, an op amp 
on their all surface mount and a number of uh, components. I think they're uh, 0508 or 0805 components on in place. It has a convenient uh, connector on uh, on it, which is uh, uh, square pins on 10th inch centers. And there are um, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine pins um, that you can plug into an external socket. It makes it very convenient to uh, to use in a modular uh, design that you might have. Um, and basically, the the blocks on the board are, if you look at the uh, schematic, the DDS60 daughter card board. By the way, uh, having a, a plug-in board like this, yeah, we refer to it as a daughter card that would plug into a motherboard, so that uh, uh, it is a, a very modular sort of thing. And other plug-in um, modules would go onto the uh, other daughter cards would go onto the motherboard. Um, strangely enough, there are no sun boards. Hmm. Well, don't know why. Uh, the block diagram of it is very, very simple. Uh, there's the 9851 uh, direct digital synthesizer chip, digital chip, which is fed by a reference oscillator, um, which is in a uh, uh, small uh, surface mount uh, case. Um, there's a, uh, there are connections to the outside world to, uh, to allow programming to uh, tell the, the DDS what uh, you want it to do, what frequency you want it to tune to. And then um, the output is a uh, piecewise approximation of a sine wave that uh, is then fed to, uh, with digital steps, then fed to a low-pass filter. In the case of the DDS-60, the low-pass filter uh, is selected to pass 60 megahertz and a little more, but to get rid of all the higher frequency uh, uh, spurious components and the uh, harmonics. Um, that's followed then by a two-stage um, RF amplifier, uh, which is an analog device's uh, op amp with uh, adjustable gain. And we'll get into more detail on exactly what it is. But the idea is um, you generate the um, uh, digitally synthesized sine wave, filter it to get a pure sine wave, and then uh, run it through a, uh, an RF amplifier with a pot on there so that you can adjust the output level. And it's a uh, specially selected uh, amplifier chip that can provide uh, approximately four volts peak to peak out uh, with very low distortion. Uh, that's not not too common on um, many DDS boards, having uh, that much of an output level with low distortion. So we wanted a, a, a low, low distortion uh, signal, uh, particularly because uh, we use it in things like the uh, AA908 antenna analyzer, where you have to get rid of uh, harmonics. So that's basically what the thing is. Um, now, um, go back to George, and I suppose we'll get into uh, some details on the uh, on those individual blocks. Yeah, we'll start going through that. Thank you, Joe. The uh, the AD ninety eight fifty one was kind of a revolutionary one. Well, I don't know. It, it was just a convenient, get, uh, good chip, and golly, for many years it was it was offered as a free sample. You can get a free sample from analog devices, as you can with many of their other devices. Just for the asking, you go to the page and indicate it's a sample and how many you want. And you can get it often within uh, within several three days to a week or so. I think with the proliferation of our DDS products and ham radio, so many of us were asking for samples that they stopped the service, um, unfortunately, because that, that's an expensive device. The chip itself is like 20 bucks. And... Um, so it, it's it's not something you it's not a common type of low cost item that you you know have a bunch sitting in, in your in a, in a little tray in your bench you use them sparingly. The 9851 was uh, is a is a an interesting chip for a couple of a couple of reasons, um, and you know, we have some of the features spelled out in you know the data sheet. 
uh, notes that follow the, the overall schematic. I'm just going to point out some of them and uh, that are of particular note, particular value to us. Uh, just overall, before we drill into the individual circuits, the 9851 itself was is it, it operates from 2.7 up to 5.5 volts. So if you happen to have like a 3.3 volt system, as many of kind of the modern circuits do, you can operate that uh, the DDS chip at 3.3 volts or even a lower voltage. And if you recall from our other discussions, other episodes of Chat with the Designers, it's it's pretty important to be aware of the voltage swings of um, the output of one chip versus the input uh, of another chip. If your voltage goes higher than the uh, than expected or that can be handled, you can destroy the input of a of a device that it's going into. So it's it's a good thing to be aware of, of that. So there's a good range of control voltage on the 809851. Um, with the 9851, you can control phase as well. So you can control phase of the uh, of the signal. It's kind of a hard thing to keep in, uh, to to picture if you really if you're not comfortable with using a scope or not not familiar with kind of like the wave relationship. But if you uh, think of a sine wave, of course, is is uh, starting at t zero and at zero at, at time zero and going through the full 360 degree cycle. You know, the top half, the bottom half of a sine wave. Um, you could you could say that that uh, phase of that signal starts at zero. Um, if you then take another signal and put it identically below it and then mirror it, uh, I mean, not mirror, but just have it directly exactly the starting at the same point, it would be in phase with that signal, uh, with the first signal. But if you take that second signal and you shift that sine wave to the right or to the left by a certain number of uh, degrees of of uh, of, uh, of pi radians, or in other words, if you just shift it to the right certain amount of the cycle um, representing the, the sinusoid, you're shifting it with, in regards to its phase. And coming back to a little bit of a point that Rick was pointing out, I mean, this is a way to get a signal that is, uh, to get two signals that are 90 degrees out of phase with each other, is to generate two signals, um, and you can indeed take two 9851s and clock them together with some care, and to produce two identical frequency signals, but you can adjust the phase register, one of the programming words um, in the uh, in the programming cycle for generating a frequency, to generate a 90 degree phase shift, for example, which again moves that second signal coming out of the second DDS to the right um, 90 degrees with respect to the original signal. So there's a way to get uh, I and Q signals in that particular manner. This is That's an application type of item. And that's another item that I really wanted to point out. And a lot of the uh, information in tonight's show is uh, either taken out or referenced to or extrapolated from the the data sheet. This, uh, I love the 809851 data sheet. Um, I don't think there's any better example in my mind of a, uh, of a device that is a complex, but all of the answers are in the data sheet, which is normally the case for a, a well-designed, well-documented product, such as uh, the DDS chip. I'm not saying it's perfect, but uh, just about anything you want to know often is in data sheet, and then some. Um, for example, of, uh, of everything you wanted to know, I mean, people often get uh, hung up when using DDSs um, on the initialization sequence for a chip. And in, in this case here, it's really important to clear out the internal uh, registers upon power-up, at least in the mode and that we've locked it into as far as serial mode. And if you don't get the DDS registers set initially upon power-up, no amount of programming is going to just is going to get it righted. 
uh, is, is going to get it corrected. And uh, that that data is is uh, that information is in the in the data sheet. Sometimes I'm guilty of it as much as anybody else. Sometimes we overlook it or say eh, that's not really important, and and ultimately uh, we don't implement something. Sometimes that's okay. In this case, it's not. So invariably, I've, I've, I've helped a lot of people get their uh, get their software working um, for controlling DDS, and invariably it comes down to something like that. Another example of, uh, of data sheet usage is that it often gives a typical usage of the chip, but it also gives some atypical or unusual ways of using this particular technology. Analog Devices, in my opinion, does a marvelous job of documenting their products. And uh, we'll get down to it in a little bit, and I don't want to let the cat too much out of the bag, but there's some pretty novel uses of a, of a DDS chip here. I mentioned one of them, talking two in parallel, um, but even beyond that. Okay, um, let's see. Why don't we uh, drop down... Joe, um, while we're, let's just go in sort of a sequence of um, of the uh, of the page. Can you dial up or can you show and address the figure 12, which is the it's it's kind of a fundamental basic of DDS chip operation, and that's the uh, output spectrum of a sampled sync signal or a sine x over x. In other words, what is the characteristic uh, waveform of the generated signal in frequency um, if you don't do any or before you do any kind of filtering? And again, I mentioned Nyquist up front, and this tends to be a very key element that needs to be carefully designed when you're implementing a DDS chip. We all know, I mean, if you've studied it at all, we all know that you got to have a low-pass filter. But exactly why and where does it get placed? This diagram, again, from the, uh, the data sheet, really sort of says it all. Joe, can you kind of uh, walk us through that? Sure, sure. Um, <laughs> it, it's a very familiar, uh, familiar-looking uh, uh, diagram for those who've uh, studied uh, the, the basic theory of uh, uh, actually uh, digital signal processing and such. What it is looks looks pretty intimidating, but it's not all that bad. Um, if you have a, um, a direct digital synthesizer, a, a DDS, uh, such as the uh, 9851, as shown in um, Figure 11. Um, it's an approximation of a sine wave. Uh, there's there's a um, there's circuitry inside the uh, DDS chip that uh, feeds um, samples of a sine wave to a um, in in a digital form to a, a DDA converter, and the DDA converter takes those numbers, converts them into uh, an actual sine wave. Uh, it's a piecewise approximation. Um, and in so doing, unfortunately, uh, in going from the, the digital world to the analog world, the, uh, the course of, of generating a sine wave this way means that it's not a perfect sine wave. Uh, it has some uh, artifacts to it. And figure 12 is a figure, uh, is a uh, pictorial of those uh, artifacts. You can see as you, uh, as you generate a frequency, on the left-hand side of the diagram is uh, DC and uh, the higher in frequency as you go to the right. Um, as you generate the uh, different sine waves, the higher you go in frequency, unfortunately, um, the, um, the output uh, amplitude follows this uh, sine, of, or sine x over x envelope, which means that the signal gets smaller and smaller. And when you reach the, uh, the clock frequency, the, um, uh, the signal actually, uh, the amplitude goes to zero. So we generally work in the in the lower part of the envelope, the first part of the envelope, and use a low-pass filter to filter out those higher-frequency artifacts. Uh, and there are there are images in there also, which uh, which can get in the way. Basic idea is you want to choose as high a clock an operating clock frequency as you can, so that the amplitude stays reasonably uh, constant. 
and um, and you, uh, you generate the minimum artifacts. Um, Ny the Nyquist uh, theorem says that uh, you can unambiguously generate a frequency, uh, you can know a frequency based on two samples. So long as there are two samples of a signal, uh, you can tell what the frequency is. Unfortunately, um, uh, you get other stuff along with it. But the idea is, if you're going to generate a sine wave at, um, say, 50 megahertz, you need at least uh, to sample at 100 megahertz. You have to sample at twice that frequency. Um, one of the other things that happens is that uh, there are artifacts, there are images, and there are harmonics of this. Um, as you can see in the uh, in this diagram, higher in frequency, lower in amplitude, the higher in frequency you go. And uh, George is going to mention a little trick later on that can be used with uh, DDS chips to generate some uh, high frequency signals higher than the uh, normal fundamental output. But um, we handle the um, we handle the uh, this imperfect waveform in the DDS-60 and other uh, DDS chips, the DDS circuits that are used for uh, signal generation in order to get uh, as clean a signal as we can out of it, staying below the, uh, the half the sample rate. Uh, is there a question from someone? Okay, thought I heard, uh, heard something in there. Perhaps someone, oh, George, go ahead. Yeah, thanks, Bob. You've got your Vox on, um, unless you're trying to say something. N2OJJ, could you turn your Vox off? Uh, maybe use a PTT or something, unless you're trying to say something. Thank you very much. Appreciate that. Yeah, I think uh, an easy way to, that I look at this, Joe, is that the, the key signal or the key uh, notation in this diagram is FC. Um, it shows it at 100 megahertz, the system clock frequency FC, you know, F for clock. And um, the F0, or actually it's FO, I don't know why they did that, but uh, they call it the frequency that's generated is the F out, FO, F out, same thing. And the whole thing is that, uh, um, as we all know, when we mix, when, when signals are, are mixed together, your, your clock frequency and your, your output frequency mixed together, you're going to get a sum and the difference. And that's where the FC minus zero, F0 in the first um, half lobe is shown and uh, that would uh, so if you're if the frequency output that you're generating is shown here is 20 megahertz if you keep increasing that and you increase it to say 30 megahertz that fc minus f0 at 80 merc it's going to move down to 70 megahertz and if you move the f out up that fc minus fo is going to move down as uh, they would theoretically come together right at i guess See that arrow that the, the sine x over x envelope that the arrow points on the first half lobe. I'm, let's say that's at 50 megahertz. Those uh, the f out versus the um, the signal generated f out would meet that first image fc minus f zero right there at 50 megahertz. And that's an illustration of the Nyquist uh, theorem. It says that the um, essentially the maximum signal ultimately that you would be able to generate if you were to let's say filter everything above that point where the arrow is at at 50 megahertz that um, the maximum signal that you could generate with a 100 megahertz clock is half that frequency. So this, this diagram illustrates that such that if F out goes, if you move that over to 50 megahertz, that would be the maximum. And that's why in this case here, a low pass filter that rolled off everything above 50 megahertz would take out everything off to the right of that 50 megahertz point and all the images and gudge and, and um, and such you know, would be eliminated, and you'd have a pretty good signal coming out uh, of your DDS chips, uh, out, of, out of the DDS board after the filtering. Okay, um, let's see. Let's get into, we're, we're, I don't want to run out of time. Um, let's get into the first block. Let's, uh, if you slide down, 
and we'll come back to some uh, some things here a little bit. It's kind of there's some cool items I wanted to point out. Slide down to the section that says dissecting the DDS60 card. And the first block we're going to look at is the DDS chip itself. So I extracted a circuit, the circuit, the the portion of the circuit that centered on the DDS chip. And what Joe and I did is we um, we we just kind of put discussion points on the call them design points, if you will. Things that were of consideration to us as we were putting together this circuit, from everything from a, a cost perspective to a functional perspective to a board layout perspective to you name it. So, and this isn't even all of it, Joe. So I'm, I'm, during our discussions, I just kind of blasted down some of the, the, the top items that first came to mind. And, you know, we often talk about a, a lot of other stuff here, too. So if something else comes to mind as we're going through this, uh, speak up. We'll stop at the end of each block. There's only like three or four blocks. To, to go through during this analyze this uh, session, but it's 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 kind of interesting. I, I think it's interesting here. So we got the the AD9851, which itself is a 28-pin SOIC. Um, um, I think that's the package type. It's 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 a small SOIC or something. And um, there's a lot of ground. You see a lot of grounding on there. See all of the the dots that uh, all the ground symbols. Um, there's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. There are eight, nine, ten. It looks like there are ten grounds, and there are um, one, two, three, four, five, six. Um, six lines that go to plus five uh, VCC. So there are different portions. If you looked at the inner block diagram of the DDS chip that was farther up above from the data sheet, you would see that there are no, numerous blocks. That it's important to, um, in some cases, and we won't have time to go into all of the detail here, but it's it's running the grounds and running uh, connecting the grounds um, can be a tricky thing, and you want to take advantage, you want to be, take care to abide by the recommendations in the data sheet for what grounds to keep separate, maybe what grounds to keep together or bring them together elsewhere and connect them by means of a capacitor. But grounding of a DDS chip is really important for a couple of reasons. One is that, of course, it often is run at its full um, full out uh, clocking rate. Now, that's just the way that we use the chips usually. Um, doing so generates a lot of current in the various uh, uh, leads, including ground. And anytime you got current going out of an output pin, there's current coming back into the chip um, if you will, if you can think about it this way, in the grounds. So there's a lot of current, there's a lot of ground in the current, and hence there's a lot of care that needs to be taken from a noise perspective and an isolation perspective. Um, so that, that's kind of one aspect of, of, of this. The, um, the reference clock, in, shown as U4, by the way, the little numbers in parentheses are, are there because we chose, we laid out the circuit board to account for two different kinds of clock reference uh, um, oscillators, uh, just two popular ones that are around in case we ran out of um, one from one vendor, we could use another, or in case the home brewer has some that he wanted to use instead of what we supplied, or just if you wanted to use the bare board. So those are just a couple of different sets. Reference oscillator supplies typically the, the maximum frequency that you want to run the clock at, and this chip is rated at 180 megahertz. However, 180 megahertz reference oscillators are not that common, or if they are, if you can find them, they're, they're kind of expensive. And there are other reasons too, but um, in this case here, uh, we use a um, reference clock that is six times less than the maximum of the chip. And we depend on an internal six times or six X multiplier inside the 89, um, uh, the 9851 uh, to take that reference out of that 30 megahertz uh, reference oscillator and boost it up to three times, oh, six times um, 30 is 180 megahertz. 
So um, there's a couple of other reasons for doing that, but that uh, the main one is, is, is cost and availability. Um, it's just an important thing to do uh, to remember when you're programming the 9851, the, there's a certain bit. Every time you program a control word to it, there's a certain bit that needs to be set. And just as an aside, you might ask yourself if you haven't considered it before, you know, how is how is the frequency generated? Um, at least how is what is the process? Um, the data load and clock pins, those three blue pins on the left-hand side, which happen to be the uh, part of the the, uh, the eight-pin connector on the board, are uh, serial load lines, uh, serial lines that were sent uh, from the microcontroller to the DDS chip. Um, essentially, 40 bits, 40, 40 bits need to be sent at high speed usually to the DDS chip. And those 40 bits, the control word going to the DDS um, contains the specific, uh, well, the control word required for um, the internal engine of the 9851 to generate the specified frequency based on the clock that is being fed to it. Now, um, uh, kind of an interesting, again, if you haven't thought about it, an interesting thing is that whenever you're turning the dial, for example, on your VFO, you might think, okay, and it's turning, and I see the frequency change, and that's cool. But every time you turn that knob, and typically it's a rotary encoder, so signals are changing on that encoder every time you touch it, barely. Every time you touch it, the signals go over to a microcontroller that you've got, whether it's a PIC or an Atmel or something else. And it notices that the encoder has changed. When the encoder has changed, it commands, it, it's, it very quickly generates a new 40-bit control word and spits that over to the DDS. And voila, you've got a new frequency coming out of your DDS. So if you were listening to an audio uh, output down in the audio baseband, or if you maybe were you know, generating a, um, an RF signal that you were listening to in a receiver, and you're taking your VFO knob and you, you know, turn the left and right and go, you know, as we all like to do, just, just to hear that sometimes. Every time you hear the tone change, the, the beat frequency change or the actual direct tone change in audio baseband, that's a time when a new 40-bit control word is being sent to the DDS chip. My point being is that there's a lot of stuff, a lot of data flying back and forth, well, actually to the chip only, but a lot of data flying to the chip all the time whenever you're turning the dial. And when you're not turning the dial, kind of the converse is present. There's no data going to the uh, chip, and the chip continues sending. Uh, the, the 9851 continues generating the last signal that it was commanded to um, to generate. So if you kind of turned it to your, your VFO, your rig to you know, 10 megahertz, and you walked away, and you came back tomorrow, and, and we're able to look at the signals without touching the dial at all, you know, that, that DDS chip would not have received any other signals, and it is still generating uh, 10 megahertz. A lot of bypassing um, on the chip, and uh, Joe, do you want to just mention real quickly the uh, RSET? RSET is R10. If you find R10, um, it's a 5.6K resistor, and uh, Joe, it's, its function, of course, is to program the current. It's, it's a current generating device. The 9851 generates current. Uh, it's a current generator um, uh, as an output through that uh, ultimately R12, which is the 51 ohm resistor. But the function of R10 was was kind of interesting. We we played with that a little bit. Yeah, the um, the output, the digital to analog converter that uh, we mentioned earlier inside the 9851 uh, doesn't generate voltage steps directly. It generates current steps. Um, and our set is used to scale the the currents that are generated by the uh, the digital to analog converter. Um, and what that means is um, 
you you there is a voltage on the R set pin. You put a resistor there, and the resistor there then sets the current that is used as the uh, uh, output amplitude uh, uh, control for the DDA converter. And and just parenthetically, there are actually two outputs there. There's uh, I out and I out B, uh, which are identical, but they're um, uh, uh, opposite amplitude, 100, 180 degree uh, out in amplitude. So basically, what you have is an amplitude control. You could put a pot on the R set pin and adjust the potentiometer to adjust the uh, the output amplitude of the 9851. And in fact, if you look in the uh, data sheet for the 9851, uh, there's a um, uh, circuit there using a, a uh, as I recall, it's a FET that they, they vary the bias to to generate the uh, amplitude modulation of the output. So just another wrinkle on the... Uh, on the 9851 that in addition to generating a precise frequency and the ability to uh, uh, set the output phase to modulate the thing in phase, you can also amplitude modulate it with an analog signal. And in fact, uh, we've done some work, not conclusively yet, trying to set up an AGC loop, um, an ALC loop, automatic level control using our set to um, give a constant amplitude output so that we don't have the roll-off of frequency that uh, that sine x over x uh, function gives you. Uh, don't have it all working yet, but uh, it's something that's uh, in the works and a handy uh, analog means of controlling the uh, the output of the 9851 as opposed to all the uh, the other digital magic. Yep, that was a that was kind of a neat uh, a neat control. It is a neat control that one has on there. And just for a point of reference, I think um, at the level that we have set. Uh, with a 5.6k resistor, we have about 200, I think 250 millivolts peak to peak being generated um, by the uh, by the DDS. So it can go up a little bit more, and, and there's some balance that you have to get at the system level. Rick, did you have a question? Yeah, it, it occurred to me um, if you wanted to FM modulate uh, the carrier signal that you're generating, that means you've got to send a string of control words at what several times the uh, frequency of the of the bandwidth of the of the FM signal. Uh, yes. And there are some circuits that allow that to, to uh, some examples to show that, although it's not too convenient, as I think you're alluding to. That will all be done back in the control microprocessor, but you've got to be able to get that data over and get the output uh, signal to settle. Uh, seems like it would be pretty complicated. Yeah, and maximum frequency that you'd be able to, to kind of deal with just based on how fast you can get the data to, um, to, the, uh, uh, to the chip. Um, let's let's move along to the low pass filter. There's really not too much to say about the low pass filter. It's a very classic um, type of design in which uh, is often used with the DDS chips. And we we dissected and had a really excellent uh, chat with the designer episode. Actually, three episodes concerning low pass filter design. And this was one of the uh, I think we took this this topology of low pass filter as a design case when we actually you know went through the design. Um, parameter selection and the tool for that. Um, so I think the, the only thing to really be uh, to be said about that is it's a 50 ohm filter. And but curiously, the uh, the output impedances set by the resistors R11 and R12 
um, and you see R11 is 24 ohms on the output B, and the first output IO, uh, I out is a 51 ohm resistor. Um, essentially, that's in parallel with the 50 ohm input of the low pass filter, resulting in a in a balanced 24 ohm um, output uh, effective impedance there. So it's a, it's a little bit of a tricky thing um, to keep that in mind. You might ask yourself, why is R11 24 ohms and if they're supposed to be sort of balanced? And if you look in the data sheet, there are other ways of um, interfacing and using, uh, you know, interfacing the outputs of the DDS chip and using the, uh, the two output pins. They are complementary, as Joe said, 180 degrees out of phase. And as such, it makes connection very nice and convenient with a transformer connected, uh, connected across those two. And that particular um, configuration <clears throat> takes care of um, uh, common mode type of, uh, of noise and gives you a cleaner signal. And oftentimes, excuse me, oftentimes our designers with the chips take, uh, take that, that particular approach. Um, and also, since I'm thinking about it, and since we still see the, the, the DDS output on the left-hand side, Rick's uh, comment I thought was leading to another point earlier in that if you are feeding a, lo a local oscillator to a balanced mixer, it's actually more ideal that if you were to drive it with a square wave instead of a sinusoid. Well, there's a way to get a, um, a sinusoid turned into, or there's a way to get a, a square wave out of the DDS chips, a very convenient way. We won't go into it much now other than to point you to the data sheet. If you feed back the output of the low-pass filter, back into the comparator input of the chip, and you have to look at the bigger the bigger chip and, and maybe even the spec sheet to see this, um, you would be able to get a squared up output of the DDS chip, which they can then feed a, um, um, a, a low pass area, a, a double balance mixer or some kind of a mixer um, very efficiently um, just with that chip. So it's not always a sine wave that you're after. Joe, do you want to touch on the output amplifier? And, and for the life of me, I was—I've been trying to think of—I uh, was trying to consider the gain that we have in that. Um, I, I made a mental note that I—I I lost my mental note to figure out uh, what that gain was, or recall, or look up our design notes on how much gain that we've got in there. That was kind of an interesting consideration when putting together an amplifier is how to distribute gain when you want, say, 18 dB, maybe it's even 20 or 23 dB in this circuit. I, I, I don't know. Um, when you have a high gain like this, as you alluded to before, Joe, um, it, uh, a factor to consider is how much gain goes in the first stage, how much gain goes in the second stage. Uh, the amplifiers you want to use uh, ought to have a high gain, pro uh, uh, gain bandwidth product and uh, for stability and, and spectral purity and so on. So do you want to comment just briefly on the, uh, on the amplifier topology? Sure. Yeah, it is a, as you can see uh, from the diagram of the output amplifier, it's a two-stage amplifier. Um, it's an AD8008 chip, which um, we found for driving 50 ohms with a fairly high output amplitude gave us uh, the best um, low distortion outputs. Uh, as George alluded to, um, you have to distribute the gain between the, the two stages for a couple reasons. Um, the gain bandwidth product is a figure of merit for an amplifier. And um, for example, if you have a gain bandwidth product of 200 megahertz um, and you set it for a gain of uh, um, 10, the, that means that um, the cutoff frequency then is one-tenth of the, the gain bandwidth product. It's a multiplicative factor or divisive factor. 
if you set it for a gain of one, you'll have a um, an output uh, roll off of 200 megahertz. If you set it for two, um, the output uh, roll off would be at 100 megahertz. And if you set it for 10, it'd only be 20 megahertz. So what you want to do is to try to balance between the two stages so that they're operating um, uh, at a low enough gain individually so that you don't uh, you don't run into uh, bandwidth limiting issues. Um, just looking at the component values, the second amplifier there has a roughly um, um, gain of four with the uh, 620 ohm resistor and a 200 ohm resistor as a feedback tap. So that's a gain of four in that stage. The first stage has a 470 ohm and um, goes down to a as low as 24 ohms. So that could have a maximum of um, um, roughly 20, 20 times gain. However, there's a 500 ohm pot in there, which uh, uh, if you set it for maximum resistance, will end up with a gain of about one. So you can adjust the gain from uh, anywhere from one to about 20 on there. Um, and the, the whole idea there is basically to set it for the maximum output uh, you want from the amplifier that distorting. Um, the lower the output amplitude uh, you have from the amp, the lower the distortion will be, and the higher the the, um, uh, the bandwidth, so you don't roll off at higher frequencies. Uh, at the low end, just just a couple of quick comments. Um, there are several capacitors that set the low low end um, uh, cutoff frequency. There's the input coupling cap C1. Um, there's the output coupling cap C7, both of which are a tenth of a microfarad, um, which give us about a, a meg, megahertz bandwidth at the low end. In addition, there are the resistors uh, C2 and C5 in the feedback networks, which uh, add frequency dependency. So if you want to use the DDS60 for lower frequencies, you have to increase the, uh, the capa those capacitor values to go lower. Um, you can get into some stability problems and noise problems if you're not careful. Uh, so most of the time, operating at RF, we leave them at a tenth of a microfarad so that uh, we don't take it down below megahertz, although you can. Uh, the DDS go darn near down to DC, but um, you can run into some stability problems and bandwidth problems because the uh, higher uh, capacitance values tend to be electrolytics or tantalum caps, which uh, then have uh, stray uh, series resistance and inductance, which can limit the high frequency uh, operation. So basically, you can have you, can, you can't have it ways unless you're very careful. You can have a low frequency DDS or high frequency DDS. If you're going to operate it over the entire range, you have to play games with those capacitors to uh, set the gain properly. Good points, Joe. And uh, and and oftentimes I get requests for you know like either I say that you know the DDS uh, 60 only goes down to uh, one megahertz or like one to 60 megahertz. You know what happens if you want to go lower than and one megahertz. Well, just what Joe said and what the notes say here is to increase the capacitor values for C1, well, for all the capacitors, uh, mostly the uh, um, uh, the coupling capacitors for the input and the output. But then realistically, you ought to do that too for the feedback loop, which uh, controls the gain and and uh, capacitors that uh, operate better at lower frequencies are, are going to be necessary, you know, upwards of uh, 10 microfarads. Um, the DDS, as an aside, the uh, the DDS chip can go down at its maximum clock frequency. I think it can, can um, go down to its lowest programmable frequency is like 0.14 hertz. So 14, oh, this is hurting my brain this time of night, 14 millihertz. millihertz. 
So it can indeed go quite slow, but you need to have good capacitors on there, uh, coupling capacitors. Even if you didn't have an output amplifier, it's a coupling capacitor coming from uh, the filters, from the output, uh, from the low-pass filters would need to be uh, um, would need to be uh, appropriately sized. Um, the power supply, the regulator section that I show next, uh, really is there's nothing super about that other than I really like the UA78M05 five volt regulator. It's a one amp package and it's in a like an SO220 223 package I think. And that package is nice because it's big enough. It's it uh it, it can be soldered fairly easily. The heat sink is the tab and if you solder the tab and have enough, you know, board space uh ground plane to do that, it's kind of like got a built-in heat sink for it and it it's just a really nice circuit. Um as with most regulators, you got to be sure that you follow the data sheet to bypass the uh, bypass the input and output um as they specify. Um not paying attention to that or just willy-nilly putting any old combination of caps on there um, will will uh, could could result in problems that you wouldn't even think about. And again, the combination of a um, a low capacitor, as as we've talked about in previous episodes of chat with the designer, capacitor selection and usage, um, a low value capacitor 0.01, I'm sorry, 0.1. Um, is often used for the higher frequency components and uh, the bigger cap, the one microfarad in this case, is used for the uh, the lower frequency uh, um, filtering um, process. So um, straightforward, nothing uh, nothing too uh, too tricky there. Um, the next, uh, does anybody have any sec any questions on these uh, sectional views of the of the DDS uh, design? We're going to go into a couple other aspects before we kind of wrap up the session here. But um, any any comments? I think uh, I saw Ken uh, put a comment about the the AD nine. Um, no, sorry, the AD eight thousand eight amplifier that we use as the output amplifier is is pretty frequency dependent um, from an output impedance perspective. And these are some of the design issues that you really got to take care about. Um, we use the uh, the DDS60 and the Micro 908 antenna analyzer, and for years we've had some problems when straight when when moving away from the sweet spot of 50 ohms and 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 far away from um, and frequency ranges. And when the output impedance of the amplifier changes, it changes some maybe some of the circuits that you've got connected to it. So that's something that you should keep in mind. Again, as always, the answers are in the data sheets. It's all in how you interpret the data sheets. And if you look at the right kinds of diagrams, that would help out too. Any questions about these uh, these different uh, snir- uh, circuit snippets? Okay. Uh, the next section uh, concerns the temperature study. We don't have enough time to get into it. I want to wrap it up in like the next five minutes here. Um, but if you get a chance to go through it, we related. Actually, this is Joe's work, and and Joe did a really nice uh, temperature analysis of it. A lot of uh, uh, people, even today, are quite concerned when the board is supposedly operating okay. It gets really hot. Uh, there are two, three things that get hot. Actually, two things. Um, the regulator gets hot on the back side, and the DDS chip itself gets hot on the front side. And I tried to offset those in positionally, so one is not—it's uh, not a thermal runaway kind of condition. There. There's there's some separation front to back and side to side. Nonetheless, people said, "Oh, I can't. It's not right. It shouldn't get that hot, and and so on." You got to keep in keep in mind that these are chips that are running very fast. And actually, in today's standards, it's not that fast. I mean, today's chips go much faster too. 
but when running at uh, um, at, a, at a high frequency, a lot of energy being used, a lot of power required in doing that. And the package is designed. Uh, there are some, again, in the spec sheet, there are some specifications that give the um, junction temperatures and uh, transfer characteristics. And what Joe did was kind of put those together in an analysis that you see here. And it's kind of like an equation that you, that you can follow down at the bottom. It says for the regulator and for the AD9851 itself, the junction temperature is maintained within its acceptable limits. So even though it gets hot, the process of getting rid of that heat is effectively being done. Now, you could have some problems if you put that DDS card when it's running at full speed and full temperatures are being generated uh, um, in, an, in, a in an enclosed environment such that it might affect other components um, or... Um, if you put in proximity of something else that is temperature sensitive, that might be a problem too. But all by itself, all out in the open with enough uh, thermal, thermal. if you get rid of the heat uh, adequately, you would have, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the circuit would work uh, just fine for a, a long term. Joe, any, any overarching comments on the temperature study that you did? I don't even remember doing that. No, it's, it's, uh, it is basic math. Um, and your, your point is well taken. This, of course, assumes um, good airflow. If you put this in a little box, uh, you're going to heat up other things in the box. And if there's no way for the heat to get out, if you don't have uh, open airflow, um, these temperatures can be exceeded because the heat will stay within the box. So you um, have to exhibit uh, uh, some care in uh, taking that into account. But uh, other than that, pretty straightforward. Uh, the numbers tell the story. The the, um, the next little highlighted uh, section, small one, it says other DDS analysis. Um, Joe, I just spotted this. Joe, where did you get this article from Gary Johnson? Come again? Um, perhaps I don't have the latest uh, version here. Okay. I changed the uh, – I updated the the the, uh, the whiteboard just before showtime, and I put that link up to the Gary Johnson analysis of the IQ Pro DDS-50. Um, Gary did a nice analysis, like a 23-page uh, study of different characteristics of the DDS um, that Craig Johnson uses on his ID uh, IQ Pro board, and um, I thought it was a, a very well done. And I just wanted to share that with with everybody here, with credit to Gary, of course. Um, if you want to take some time and read through his analysis, it corroborates a lot of what we talked about, and he goes into even greater depth on signal quality and some of the the spurs being generated. Yeah, just a comment. Uh, the the Gary, I see I see the link now. I just updated um, his analysis of the DDS60 is uh, uses a linear tech is when we were still using a linear technology chip, which uh, did not have as good uh, output amplitude with uh, low distortion as the uh, analog devices chip that's in there now. Yeah, we had this thing called a DDS. Oh golly, a DDS amplifier daughter granddaughter card. <laughs> Anyways, we, we just as a really short but interesting background, when we started with the DDS designs, it was with DDS30 using the AD9850 car, uh, chip. And um, we had, uh, oh golly, I think we started with the Mimic amplifier, uh, the MMIC amplifier, and, um, and from mono, 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 monolithic, mono, mini circuits from mini circuits and uh, had some problems with oscillations with that that we couldn't control. And we went to a, a discrete amplifier, um, just a couple of transistors. And then we finally went to the uh, LTC 1252. I think that was the number. And that's what Gary was using in his, some of his uh, studies too. 
And then we finally found the AD8008, uh, which we thought was uh, probably the best best solution overall, so we kept with it. But anyways, that this design analysis by Gary was is really nice. So if you're at all interested in the stuff that we're talking about here tonight, check out this link uh, that we put in the uh, whiteboard for Gary's paper, and I think you'd enjoy it. The last section here of, of the DDS uh, uh, part of the show <clears throat> is uh, what I wanted to do is just have a working working example of, of a simple DDS and a controller using da, 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 the Arduino. So I grabbed the circuit, um, the, uh, the sketch, from um, Peter Marks. It's one of the links that we've talked about before. It's a simple sketch. Uh, I think it's got some problems. I'm, I'm looking at it here on my bench, and it's not quite working the way that I think either he wanted to or I'm not doing something that he did. Um, but I'm, I'm dedicated to get this thing working. It's, it's as simple as it's pictured there, a simple Arduino, Uno, that takes the three... Oh, maybe that's the problem. I didn't bring the ground over. Hot diggity. That might be it. Anyways, it takes the three signals for load, clock, and data over to the uh, DDS card, and the DDS card is independently powered. You see that with the, with the coaxial power going there, and then I have a scope probe on... Uh, on there. I love these little proto cards. They're just really nice for whipping up some circuits, these plug boards. But anyways, if you load up the sketch and, and maybe if you add a ground wire, um, it would work uh, work properly. I'll report back, back on that. Rick, go ahead. Uh, I just tried uh, following the uh, link that you have in the sketch there and I get a not found. Oh, I think I know why. Yeah, thanks for that. I'll, I'll correct that right after the show. I, I need to move things from my... Uh, I need to move things from my... Uh, Arduino sketchbook over to the part that gets uploaded for the web page. Thanks for that. So um, I'm going to add the ground and give that a try. But anyways, this is just a simple way to have, it's like a, a 30 line at most um, sketch that you can load into an Arduino, pull over those three signals and the ground, and you should be able to generate a 10 megahertz signal that gets swept um, from 10 megahertz to 10.1 or 10.001, you know, 1000 hertz sweep. And you can hear that in the receiver. So a simple working example of the, the various theories that we've had uh, uh, working here tonight. Any questions on the DDS? We're going to just touch on the cool product of the month and then wrap it up here. But before we go away from DDS, does anybody have any comments about uh, this technology? Yeah, I wanted to uh, make one comment, uh, George. Um, I have also programmed a, um, a 9850 from a, I think I did it with a basic stamp, at any rate, with uh, with another simple controller. Um, earlier on, we didn't uh, talk about it, but uh, had an extract from the uh, analog devices data sheet where they they have uh, and from their web page they have a um, well, an application on there where you can derive what the uh, control word has to be for any frequency. Um, very easy to use, and, and I suspect that uh, Marks, when he did this for his sketch, did that to generate the um, control word for frequency. Very simple to do, no extended math, uh, no, um, uh, no PhD required. Uh, another example of uh, analog devices, excellent support. Oh, yeah. I, I, I was only listening with one ear, Joe. Were you referring to the design tool? Affirmative. Oh, yeah. Good good point. Uh, we I skipped over that just in the interest of time, but I give a link there for the design tool, as Joe said, for the AD9851. That's a great way to... Um, See if you uh, to to easily enter one freak, one set of uh, you know one code word you know five uh, four bytes and um, 
um, see if you're entering them in the right order and the right, you know, for whatever frequency that you might be, that the design tool might show, you can enter that manually into some applications that send the control word to the uh, DDS chip to generate that one frequency. And it's just a handy dandy way to uh, to do that, to check your code, to check your frequencies and, and so on. Thanks, thanks for pointing that out. Um, Joe, do you want to talk about the cool product of the month? Just a couple of minutes. That's all we have left. And you uh, you spotted this thing, and I thought it was pretty cool. So that's why I said, sure, let's do it. Talk about some poles. Okay, poles and zeros. Some Bodhi plots for those who may uh, have had a double E education. For those who don't, uh, forget it. <laughs> it's not that important. Okay, um, quite often when we're operating portable for uh, quick uh, operating activities or for field day, whatever, it's nice to have a simple um, antenna mast to take along. A um, number of us have used various uh, uh, fishing poles, crappy poles, uh, black widow poles, 20 feet or so. But it's awfully nice to have something that is um, 30, roughly 33 feet, about a quarter wavelength on uh, 40 meters. Um, first of all, if you're using, if you're trying to do a quick vertical, just run 33 feet of wire up the up the mast, have a, a quarter wave vertical. Or if you're um, trying to operate on 20, getting the uh, center of a dipole using one of these masts up to uh, 33 feet is nice because that's a half wavelength on 20, so you get some nice uh, low angle radiation. And you can use them with obviously with other wire antennas. But um, I saw, I think it was on the GQRP list uh, a week or so ago, uh, Soda Beam of Britain has a 33-foot pole, a one-meter pole, that um, uh, telescopes like many of the poles do. But this one has, I think it's 17, uh, 17 sections. There's a um, picture here. I'm looking, yeah, 17 sections weighs about three pounds, but it telescopes down to 26 and a half inches, which is very, very convenient for travel. Um, some of the other masts only only collapse down to somewhere between three and four feet, and that can be kind of clumsy. But this 26 and a half inch thing, uh, you could get in a big suitcase with no problems at all. And um, it is also um, glass-reinforced plastic, they call it. We would probably call it fiberglass. So that means it's um, a very, very good um, uh, high dielectric antenna uh, support. Uh, a wire placed next to it is not going to be detuned as some of the carbon fiber masts do and won't cause um, loss. Downside is, um, well, first of all, after Soda Beams announced this fall a week or so ago, they're totally sold out. Uh, the link is uh, on the webpage here, but um, he may not uh, sell them to the states directly. So time will tell. It looks like a very, very handy thing to uh, to buy. Just by word of uh, mention, other uh, other poles that are in the same class, um, one of the classics that's been used quite a bit is the DK9SQ uh, mast, which is uh, uh, by, uh, well, DK9SQ, a German. It has been handled here in the States by Kanga US. I think Kanga is currently out of stock, and I think... Uh, Bill Kelsey, K-A-E-T, the uh, uh, proprietor of Kangi US, is having some uh, some health issues, so it may not be available too soon. Um, if you're looking for something lighter duty, not quite as rugged, and a little less expensive, uh, the MFJ 1910 is a 33-foot pole, but it's a little little more flimsy. And the thing I've used myself is um, a pennant pole um, sold by Jackite Corporation. We have a link for that also. It's a 31-footer, uh, which is not quite 33 feet. So if you want to have a 40-meter uh, uh, water wave dipole, you just uh, 
Okay, you just um, slope it a little bit. I see a note in the um, text window that the Howie K3HW has ordered one of these uh, masts. Um, so apparently they, they will ship to the U.S. And um, they claim that uh, on the 6th of June, which is uh, two days from now, they're going to have more in stock. So uh, I may have to order one of the darn things. Sounds very handy. Anyway, nice way to go for portable operation. Very convenient. And something that will collapse down to 26 and a half inches is even more convenient. Time will tell, but I think, uh, I think, uh, I think I'm probably going to get one. Uh, back to you, George. That's good, Joe, and I can't wait to try it out myself once you get it. <laughs> well, we have to do a field day uh, uh, operation this, this year. We uh, we didn't do Dayton, so I'd like to get out in the field there with you and we can work something. Okay, um, any, uh, any any final questions here for tonight? Uh, did we touch on something that you found interesting or you had all the questions about or wanted to drill down a little bit more or just kind of raise from... Uh, raised from previous episodes that maybe have a question or a comment. Um, anything whatsoever, go ahead. Yes, sir, Mr. Carl, go ahead. Yeah, thank you, George. Um, yeah, to Joe's point about uh, Kanga U.S., uh, Bill Kelsey has had a stroke. Uh, he was at Dayton, uh, looked quite good, uh, but he does have some speech problems. He has a problem with an arm, and he does walk a little slowly, but uh, it really surprised me to uh, turn around uh, during the sessions at four days in May and uh, find Bill there, uh, and he was around at the Dayton Hampton also. So uh, there is no date uh, for reopening, though. Uh, nobody's handling it, uh, so I, I don't know when you're going to see Kanga back. Oh boy, yeah, we had heard about Bill's uh, Bill's problems, and our prayers were with it, are with him, of course. Um, surprised to hear that I didn't I didn't know that he was at Dayton. Okay, very good, good uh, good for him. Sounds like he's uh, uh, working through it a bit. Okay, um, any other questions here before we wrap? Um, sure, was that you, Rick? I didn't see. Uh, yeah, you mentioned in passing when you were talking about the various pins on the 9851 that uh, you had uh, output. Uh, digital outputs for uh, in quadrature, so I take it that they take the two out two outputs and go right into a uh, a quadrature detector uh, without going through all the analog business, right? Nope, not quite. Um, the outputs are complementary, which is 180 degrees out of phase. And again, that's probably best suited for using a transformer um, and other common mode type of uh, uh, interfaces and such. Uh, check out the data sheet and also just like a, a bajillion in references when you Google 9851, you'll see everybody's brother and their brother's uh, implementation of, of the circuit and, and whatnot. Um, but if you wanted to get quadrature, the only way conveniently that I'm aware of is to use two chips um, clocked from the same clock, making sure that the path leading from the, the single clock reference module going to each of the module, each of the DDS chips is identical and um, so as to be clocking at exactly the same time. And then you got to be programming it at the same time. So there's some parallelism of control uh, lines and such. So just check out the data sheet for that. And I think that's that's the way to do it if you were so inclined. Um, Lyle Johnson, uh, KK7P, and I did some experimentation on a board. Uh, actually, not the 9851. There was 9834, I think, or maybe 9830, a lower frequency, where we had two um, that we wanted to used to create um, quadrature signals. And it worked out really well. The project just never took off, but uh, that technique was uh, quite, it was implemented quite well. Okay, I, I guess I got confused because the pins were named I out and Q out, so I figured they were, they were quadrature signals. I also noticed my favorite SDR article of all time is uh, Gary Youngblood's uh, 
uh, article in uh, July, August 2002, uh, uh, talking about the whole theory of uh, uh, software-defined radio. And he uses a 9854 uh, to get his quadrature signals uh, directly uh, to drive his payload detector. Yep, indeed, yeah. Um, that Youngblood article is very good. It's uh, it, it was very seminal, which means that his article series back then was used as a foundation for a lot of experimentation, a lot of it by himself and continued work, um, but uh, for a lot of others too. So it was uh, a very seminal piece, very useful for our community. Okay then, well, we'll wrap her up then. Thank you everybody for attending. Hope you enjoyed the, tonight's show. As usual, Joe and I had a ball putting together and kind of slugging things. I've already updated that one uh, link, so if you re uh, refresh your page, you, that link works for the sketch. And you will see that it does not have the initialization uh, sequence that is required that's specified in the 9851. And that might be a part of the reason, too, that um, that uh, the circuit, uh, the sketch, didn't, doesn't work out of the box. So um, the... Uh, um, Bob, N2OJJ, you mentioned that you used 9815 got 90 degree outputs out of the same chip? Yeah, actually, it was, um, I think it might have been one of your um, original PIC projects that I had looked at and I rewrote the code a little. But when you look at the data sheet on the 9850, and a couple of bits in the config word were marked 0, 90, 180, and 270, and they actually offer that. I'm, I don't know if the 51 does. Um, I think what you're, uh, I think, um, I think the 9851 does indeed. In fact, it can go greater granularity than uh, than what you specified. But the whole thing is, is that your that phase that that phase offset is being applied to the single, the one and only output um, signal being generated by the DDS card. Again, I described this earlier when we had this the sinusoid starting at zero um, at t equals zero, but you could have that sine wave starting at uh, t is you know 90 plus 90 degrees, but it's still just shifting at one signal. It's not with respect. It's, there's not res with respect to another signal. There's only one signal being generated. That's actually something I have to try because I just got a couple of the boards from eBay. And I say I rewrote the code a little to change the band step to go through all of the CW calling frequencies by default, not just to go by kilohertz. So I actually want to play with that because it's something that, that I thought was interesting. It really would have been easier if you could just use one of those boards to create you know, real I and Q signals. What board is that? Well, I bought a, a Chinese clone of the... The 98, the 50, the 50, the, and I, again, it was. I think I found it on the AMQRP site or somewhere. Uh, but I found the code for the pick. Somebody had taken the time to rewrite it in Microlabs IDE, and it actually was working pretty good. I had a friend check it out on a spectrum analyzer. We were looking at it, and next thing now, of course, I want to make a few changes. But I really have to look into that because SDR is the next thing I want to play with. Alrighty then. Well. Good luck with that, and, and uh, report back if you find uh, that it can indeed generate two signals that are 90 degrees separated from each other. Um, thank you, everybody, for attending. We're going to close it down now. We'll see you again in two weeks. And uh, if you've got an idea or a topic that you'd like to suggest for the next uh, coming uh, week or two, uh, the session or two, let us know. We can study up on it. We're likely going to come back to the Arduino uh, for just at least in part um, as we start to head toward the finish line for the uh, remote clock, for sure. A nice clock on the wall with rotating uh, LEDs. 
and um, the uh, uh, the ham station mesh network is is still kind of on the plate. But nonetheless, we are touching on various other things as we go along too. Seventy three all.